Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. We want, uh, Father, for our worship now to give glory to you. And uh, we want to see that happen as children desire their glorious Father to be lifted up. And we ask now, Lord Jesus, that you would write your letter on tablets of human hearts. Write your letter, Lord. Write the sermon on our hearts, this great sermon on the mount. And would you also act savingly to call uh, your sheep to yourself today and by your power to bring them out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, well, I've been struck this week uh, by the symmetry that exists, I think. There's a kind of a, a remarkable balance between the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, we do things a little bit backwards. We start at the back of the Sermon on the Mount, and you can ask somebody why we did that last week. But, um, you know, there is a, there's a symmetry to the way Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount and the way he begins the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning. Excuse me, at the end last week, we saw that Jesus described this this gate, right? This narrow way that leads to life, this narrow gate and this narrow and hard way to lead that leads to life that is utterly rejected by the world. And it just bypassed and mocked by the world. And yet that's the way that leads to life, according to Jesus. And here at the beginning... We have Jesus uh, describing the character of his disciples and their identity. And he's, and he's making promises to them. And he's doing it in a way that sketches out a profile that we know 
uh, looks in the eyes of the world like absolute insanity. And yet, in both the beginning and the end, what we have is Jesus guaranteeing for us that assuring for us, assuring us that God the Father blesses what the world rejects and God the Father treasures what the world mocks. Uh, In the opening uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount, there are two portions that I had Dan read uh, this morning. uh, The Beatitudes and then verses uh, 13 through 16. And in those uh, 16 verses, what we see Jesus doing is is, uh, introducing his disciples uh, to the two radically uh, redefined relationships that they now have by virtue of being his disciples. And the first relationship that's radically redefined is their relationship with God. That's going to be the one that we focus on this morning. Next week, we're going to focus on the second radically redefined, transformed relationship that Jesus gives to his disciples. And that's our relationship to the world. And that's really verses 13 through 16 about the salt and the light and the ministry that he entrusts to us. This morning, I want to focus on uh, the the radically redefined relationship that Jesus gives us with God and not just with God. Here's what's so significant about this. And we'll look at this more in a minute. But Jesus doesn't just give us. We learn from these verses. He doesn't just give us a new relationship with God. His Father becomes our father. And right there, right from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we are looking at what makes Christianity so utterly different from every other religion. And there are two aspects to this new relationship with God that I want to think about with you this morning. The first is uh, the blessing of our new identity as the sons of God. And the second is the blessing of our security as the sons of God. But honestly, before we get any further, uh, don't you just have to pause when you hear Dan read the Beatitudes? And don't you, don't you have two reactions? I mean, I have two reactions when I, when I read and listen to Beatitudes. On the one hand, and the first reaction that I think we're meant to have is to be is to be deeply humbled. Uh, Because who of us can read uh, this list of characteristics and not realize that he or she is somebody who falls incredibly short of the beautiful vision that Jesus lays out? On the other hand, and at the same time, uh, I'm also deeply grateful When I read this list, for two reasons. One is, I know Jesus himself hasn't failed to live up to this portrait. I have a Savior who's poor in spirit. I have a Savior who mourns for sinners. I have a Savior who's meek and who has inherited the earth. I have a Savior who's pure in heart, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. I have a, a Savior who's a peacemaker and who is willing to show mercy I have a Savior who was willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oh, what a great Savior we have. And one day, one day, one day by His power, this will be completely and permanently our profile. Because He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So let's 
look first at the blessing of our new identity as the sons of God. And there are two, uh, two aspects to this new identity, uh, our new standing and our new character. You know, if you don't, uh, let's, let's talk about standing first. If you aren't clear about who the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to, your entire interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is going to go off the reservation and you're going to misunderstand it. Okay? And people have done this for centuries. They've said, oh, the ethic of Jesus is just embodied in the Sermon on the Mount and what we need is to live as a society where that's what we do. And as soon as somebody says that or thinks that, you know that immediately they haven't read it. This is not intended, and Matthew is very clear about this. This is not intended to be this, just this body of teaching that's just plopped down between chapters 4 and 8 that then we can just pull out willy-nilly and just say, okay, we're going to drop it over here and say, you know, your society's messed up. Just do the Sermon on the Mount. That's absolutely not the case. That's not what Jesus intended. You know very clearly from the way Matthew introduces it that Jesus is discriminating here between the crowds who are following him and his disciples. Jesus' primary intended audience for the Sermon on the Mount is for those who are already his disciples. Now, he fully expects, as we see at the end of chapter 7, that there are going to be other people who overhear the conversation But his remarks in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've got to be clear on this, are addressed to those who are already his disciples. Look at how Matthew makes this very clear. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. In other words, he's pulling away from the crowds intentionally. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. That is so utterly critical. To see that the people, the primary intended audience that Jesus is addressing here are those who have already responded to his two great calls that we've seen him issue already in Matthew's gospel. Call number one, Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Call number two, Matthew 4.19, follow me. So this, this sermon and its teaching is ultimately intended for those who are already Jesus' disciples. And you might say, well, is that splitting hairs? No, it's not. Because what's at stake in getting that sequence right is the actual meaning of the Gospel. Because as as you read the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to do it this afternoon. Read the whole thing. It won't take you that long. And I want you to notice something. How often Jesus says about the disciples or with reference to the disciples when he describes God, how he identifies God as Father. And not just as Father, but as their Father. So many people, so many people operate under a very profound misunderstanding and it's deadly that everyone, by virtue of being a human being, is a child of God. That is not what the Bible teaches The only way anyone gets to name God as their Father is to have Christ as their Savior. It's only those who believe in Jesus, the Apostle John says, and who receive Him, who believe in His name. It's only those people to whom Jesus gives the authority to be called the children of God. 
And that's what we're seeing here. What, the great wonder that we see right from the beginning is that what Jesus is saying to this group of His disciples is, when you follow Me, when you become My disciples, you become sons of My Father. You're not just My disciples. You're sons of My Father, just as I am a son of His Father. And we get hints of this already in verses 9 and 16. Very well, it's not this is explicit, these aren't hints. There are plenty more hints, but I don't have time for the hints. But look at verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, meaning God's their Father. And look at verse 16 very explicitly. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, give glory to the Father, give glory to your. You see, what a wonderful window into what Jesus is saying. It means to follow Him. To repent. When you repent of your sins because the kingdom is at hand, when you follow Jesus, guess what happens? In following Jesus, in coming to Jesus, in bringing your repentance to Jesus, guess what happens? Jesus makes you into a son of God. I think we really could rename the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Jesus didn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. We do. It really ought to be called the Sermon for the Sons of God. Yes, it's a manifesto of God's kingdom. It's awesome. But friends, it's a conversation within the royal family of the universe. It's a, it's a breathtaking window into what the gospel is about, what God's grace is about. God, God is not content. You see, this means, friends, this is so important. God is not content just to forgive your sins. It's not enough. It's not enough to lift uh, his wrath from you, his just wrath from you. It's not enough for the heart of God that you would be given eternal life and spared hell. No. God's purpose from before the foundation of the earth is that all of Christ's people would be conformed to the image of His Son so that He might be the firstborn among many, what? Brethren. He wants children. So, see, see what happens when you take the Sermon on the Mount and you turn it into this abstract moral code and you say... I just need to be that way so I can be a moral person. That is like a a grain of sand next to the Everest of the intentions of God's heart. It's so beautiful. And Beatitudes are not the root of your acceptance with God, my Christian brother and sister. They are the fruit of your acceptance by God through the work of Christ. They are not a list. They are not a ladder that you have to climb in order to become the children of God. They are, they are what you will be made into. They show you how to live because you have been made the sons of God. It's about grace from beginning to end. 
And so not only do we have a new standing as sons of God, but we've been given a new character. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Beatitudes is that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that he can uh, explain, if you will, to his adopted sons uh, the blessings of their new identity. And ladies, it just occurs to me to say if you're being put off by this male centric language uh, about being sons, uh, I want to say two things about it. One is lighthearted. One is serious. Uh, the lighthearted one is this. I have to identify myself as the bride of Christ. So get over it. OK. <laughs> and the other part of it is in the biblical context, right? Sonship and inheritance are inseparable. So this is a, a statement about inheritance. OK. It doesn't have to do with maleness. But, you know, he, he sets out this, this new character that we have. This, our new identity is about a new standing. And then there's this new character. You see, the gospel gives us this standing. And the same gospel that gives us this new standing changes who we are. And it's terrifying. And beautiful at the same time. Uh, these eight beatitudes, and there are eight, there aren't nine. Ten through twelve are one. They're all about the theme of persecution. You notice the kingdom is the promise that's attached to the first one. And the kingdom is attached to the last beatitude, verse 10. But these aren't describing eight different kinds of Christians. It's like the fruit of the spirit, the ninefold fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. Those are meant to be uh, pictures of a comprehensive picture of what. God's spirit is producing in the lives of everyone who's joined to Christ. And this is the same way. There aren't Christians who are the meek Christians. And then over here are the Christians who are being persecuted. This is a comprehensive portrait that he's giving to us. And in this portrait, we see uh, Jesus telling us, really unpacking the gospel at kind of two levels. One is there's an order to the gospel. That's what we're going to look at first. And secondly, there's a story of how the gospel's a power continues to transform us. So let's think first about uh, how we see the order of the gospel, uh, how the Beatitudes keep us grounded in the proper order of the gospel. And by order, I mean that the Beatitudes began at the beginning. Do you notice it, it the, when Jesus is describing the character of his Disciples, there is, I think, a very deliberate order. There's a fountain head here, if you will, from which the others uh, very clearly and deliberately flow. And that 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 fountain head is poverty of spirit. Do you notice that? And he announces its importance by emphasizing that the poor in spirit to the poor in spirit belong the kingdom belongs the kingdom of heaven. Uh, remember, what's shocking about this is that Jesus is, you've you got to remember, he's talking to people who are already his disciples. He's not, he's not talking to people who are not yet his disciples, at least not primarily. And so what it means, this is very interesting. This tells us how, this is again another window from the scriptures into how God views the Christian life and the role of the gospel in the Christian life. The gospel is not just relevant to the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel is what the whole Christian life is about. Okay? Jesus is talking to men who are already converted, who are already his disciples. And he says to them, uh, you've got to be poor in spirit. 
and the implication is this is this poverty of spirit is not just something that defines you as a condition in order for you to enter the kingdom, but it's something that has to continue and increasingly characterize you as you live within the kingdom. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that poverty of spirit is meant to be a defining characteristic of the Christian throughout the duration of the Christian life. And that means that repentance, just like Martin Luther's first thesis on the Wittenberg church door, repentance is the way of life. I love uh, the quote from Thomas Watson I gave. Of course, I always love the reflection quotes. That's why I put them in there. But that Thomas Watson quote, the Puritan, he says, listen, understand the way God works. He empties the glass before he pours in the wine. God empties a man before he pours in the choice wine. God is not interested in blending the wine of our achievements with the wine of his grace. He's got to empty the cup first. And then he'll pour his wine in. The wine of his grace. And it's not until somebody, it's not until somebody is gripped by their inability to offer to God anything that could compel His favor. It's not until you're deeply persuaded of that first that you'll become a Christian. And it's only to the extent that you remain increasingly and repeatedly persuaded of that that you will actually grow in the Gospel after you've become a Christian. Poverty of spirit is not self-loathing. It's a loathing of self-excellence. Let me say that again. Poverty of spirit is not the loathing of yourself. Poverty of spirit is the loathing of your self-excellence, of your self-righteousness, of your self-preoccupation. To be poor in spirit means that you rightly understand that when you stand before God, there is nothing that you've ever had, nothing that you have, and nothing that you will ever have, or that you did, or are doing, or could ever do, that would be value that you could give to God in exchange for Him giving you entrance into the kingdom of God. No quality of life. Nothing. You know, Jesus says, hey, listen, when the servants come in from the field after working all day for the master and the master says, hey, fix dinner for me. And the servants do it. Guess what? The servants don't get any kudos. They're the servants. They're supposed to do it anyway. Sometimes Jesus can sound really tough, but what he has to do sometimes is he has to knock us on our chops because we're so committed This vision, this illusion, this mirage of our own self-righteousness as though we who are the creatures were entitled to to demand from God anything. We live by grace. And Jesus is, is confirming that. He's saying, listen, the kingdom of heaven for men, when the kingdom of heaven comes, the kingdom of heaven, this king, this king is so righteous and so holy and so gracious. You can't buy him off. And your entrance into the kingdom and your life in the kingdom will always be about His grace. And when Jesus is putting this beatitude first in the order, He's saying, in effect, that this reality of poverty of spirit is supposed to continue to deepen and broaden the longer you're a Christian. 
Now, if you read the commentaries on uh, this first beatitude, you'll see a lot of references to bankruptcy. And it's interesting to me because I know a little bit about bankruptcy. Uh, more than most of these commentators, as a matter of fact. And, you know, in our system, you've got to be really careful here. Because in our system, there are two main types of bankruptcy. There's chapter 11 and chapter 7. These are very different visions of bankruptcy. And I, I, I'm illustrating this to demonstrate what true poverty of spirit is. Okay? Chapter 11 is what we call a reorganization bankruptcy. And what happens in chapter 11 is a business that still thinks it's a going concern, but is kind of being harassed by creditors, or maybe it's just you know, suffered some kind of setback and they just need a little break. They file for bankruptcy. The court protects them. And the whole point of a chapter 11 is to kind of rehabilitate the business so that it can then get back on its feet, come out of bankruptcy and still function. You know, most people approach poverty of spirit like that or repentance like that. You know, something hard happens in their lives. It could be circumstantial. It could be internal. And they say, you know what? I need to get God in my life. As though he were the monkey on the end of an organ grinder's chain. God doesn't want chapter 11 repentance. Poverty of spirit is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really messed up. But, you know, deep down, I still have this confidence that, you know, I can make a go of it. I'll just try harder. I'll be better. I'll go to church more. I'll give. That's chapter 11, repentance, and it smells in God's nostrils. Because, despite the evidence, it holds on. But chapter 7 is about liquidation. And in a chapter 7 of bankruptcy, the starting point is... I'm done. I look back and I've got nothing but liabilities. I look forward and I'm not a going concern on my own. There is no recovery within the four corners of me. So the only hope is to liquidate. Now, you know what the gospel is? The gospel is so much better than that. God wants chapter 7 repentance. So that he can rescue us. He wants the cup empty. So he can pour in his wine. And guess what? You become a Christian and you're constantly shuttling back and forth between chapter 11 and chapter 7. You start in chapter 7 and you kind of get a handle on things and you make progress. And you go, hey, maybe I'll convert to chapter 11. You're constantly shuttling back and forth because that self-righteousness, that self-reliance, it dies so hard. And the gospel, God intends that it die altogether. And he wants that poverty of spirit. Friends, the narrow gate at the entrance to the Sermon on the Mount announces as clearly and unmistakably as possible that salvation is 100% by grace from beginning to end. It's only those who are poor in spirit, who gain the kingdom of heaven. 
And what the thing about the gospel that's so amazing is at, at the same time, the gospel demands. Think about the logic of Jesus. I mean, if Jesus doesn't confuse you, it's probably because you're not really paying attention to him. Because on the one hand, he comes and says the first thing out of his mouth is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now we're just a few verses later. And he says, if you're poor in spirit, you are a member of the kingdom and you're a son of God. Now, how did that happen? Because the Savior who commands us to repent is just that. He's a Savior. And it's His work. It's the gift of His wine, of His perfect obedience, and His perfect righteousness, and the wine of His blood poured out as the guilt offering for our sin. It's that, and the certainty of that, the whole package that makes repentance not just wise, but safe and beautiful because we know since Jesus has come that our poverty of spirit will be met by the riches of our Father's grace. It feels very dangerous. But the gospel is a scandal. You see, God is... I just want you to think about this. Just, just in that first beatitude, I just want you to behold how scandalous the gospel is. God is totally unswayed, totally unimpressed by our deeds. And He is equally unswayed and undeterred by our failures. The gospel is both And the Christian life, I I, I just believe this so much. The Christian life, one way to think about it is that it is the continual unpacking of the significance and the meaning of what happened to us in our conversions. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying your life needs to be one of continual, ongoing conversion. And, the, and as that happens, the gospel's story, the gospel's power as it's released in a life is going to change you. If you think about it, if you're poor in spirit, if you're genuinely poor in spirit, to the extent that you're poor in spirit, you're going to mourn your sin, aren't you? And if you're genuinely poor in spirit you're going to become an increasingly meek person, a person who, who is willing. This, I, I read this in John Stott. I thought this was very helpful. When he was explaining, uh, blessed are the meek, he's saying what meekness is, mourning is essentially mourning our sin and the loss uh, that, that sin has brought into our lives before God. And he says meekness is essentially that what happens to our character as we are genuinely uh, mourning that that reality of our sin and its consequences, the meekness is what the meek what meekness represents is our willingness to be identified by others the way that we confess ourselves to be to God. I thought that was really good. And if we're poor in spirit and we've been met by God's grace, we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, aren't we? We're going to want we're going to want to be like this father who's been so kind to us. And that poverty of spirit is also going to beget a merciful disposition in us because we know that we've received mercy. And so it will become increasingly, by God's grace, 
uh, the way we deal. We've received mercy as sinners, so we will deal with our fellow sinners mercifully. And if we're poor in spirit, that poverty of spirit is going to increasingly beget a pure heart that's going to give us a desire to know God in sincerity. And spiritual poverty will make us peacemakers because we've been on the receiving end of a great reconciliation and we will love peace. And spiritual poverty will ultimately, right, as Jesus says, beget opposition and rejection and even hatred from a world that worships its own self-sufficiency apart from God. So that's our identity. And then there's the blessing of our security as the sons of God. You notice I only talked about the first half of each beatitude. You notice that Jesus gives us two halves. He tells us what the character is that's blessed. And then he anchors, he anchors every one of those features with a promise. Now, the great weight of those promises is, 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 is tilted toward the future. But there is a present experience of them. You notice... In both the first and the last beatitude, Jesus is saying, listen, the kingdom of heaven is already yours. But there's also a dimension in which these promises are future oriented because the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. We are going to inherit the earth, but not by conquering it with armies, but by receiving it as the inheritance of our Savior when he returns. And in every one of these promises, what we see Jesus doing is he knows he's not naive about the world and he knows that the profile that he's drawing for his disciples is on a collision course with the way the world works. And so he's anchoring this every one of these calls, if you will, into the trustworthiness of his his own trustworthiness and the trustworthiness of his father. These promises are absolutely huge. The kingdom of heaven twice comfort. Inheriting the whole earth, satisfaction, literally, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Literally, it means stuffed. A mercy will be on the receiving end of mercy. We'll see God and we'll be known as sons of God. He's not offering vague, optimistic drivel. He's saying, you've got to trust me on this. You've got to trust my father on this. Our credibility, our trustworthiness is what is where you need to put your weight down. And that leaves us with a very stark choice. Because what that means, friends, for every disciple of Jesus Christ, is that we've got to figure out. We, we look at the world. What this means is that somebody is playing with monopoly money. This means that either Jesus is playing with monopoly money or the world is playing with monopoly money. And how we respond to the Beatitudes indicates who we think the counterfeiter is. You see, Jesus is standing in the midst of the world of men and he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, men, the men of the world play a game. They play it for fake treasure and fake rewards that will not last in the end. But I call you to live. I call you to live for real life in light of real treasure and real reward and real losses. And I want you to put so much weight down on my trustworthiness and my Father's trustworthiness that even when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, even when you are reviled and all kinds of things are said about you falsely on account of me, I want you to be so 
so committed, so enveloped by the trustworthiness, not just of my father, but also of me, that when you suffer loss at the hands of the world, you won't think any more of it than if you were playing Monopoly and the bank foreclosed on your Baltic Avenue property. That's the vision he's setting out. You see, this is a radical call to trust Jesus over our common sense and over the wisdom of the world. And friends, the Beatitudes are like this fork in the road. Who are we going to trust? And he knows there's going to be a cost. He knows it. He knows it's going to be hard. There's such realism here. So why should we trust the Father? We should trust the Father because the Son is standing right in front of us. He sent the Son into the world. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. If God, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know that God the Father is for us? The answer comes in the very next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely or graciously give us all things? The way you know you can trust the father is that for your greatest need, friends, he gave not just a promise, but he gave his son. And we've got to trust Jesus. Why should we trust Jesus? Well, we should trust him because ultimately... The Beatitudes are really Jesus' self-portrait. He's describing himself and his ministry to us and what he's going to endure. He's describing a life that he's going to live before he calls us to live it. You see, he's the most blessed of men because he was the most poor of spirit. He spent his deity... In his incarnation. And he, for our sake, he who was rich for our sake, made himself poor that we through his poverty might become rich. And he is the one, he's the chief mourner among men, isn't he? Weeping over Jerusalem, the city that would crucify him. Weeping over Lazarus' tomb. Weeping even on the cross, right? Crying out and acknowledging, mourning the loss of his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was the meekest of men. The meekest of men. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. The same word, I am gentle. He's the most blessed man who ever lived because he's the hungriest and thirstiest who ever lived after righteousness. He said, we saw it in chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then in John 4, he says to his disciples, he says, listen, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And Jesus Christ is the most merciful of men when he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of his people unjustly, unjustly under the injustice of men. What did he say to them? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He had the purest heart that ever beat within a human breast. He was the ultimate peacemaker, right? Overcoming a greater estrangement than there has ever existed in the history of the world. And he did it at the price of his own blood so that when the Apostle Paul describes Jesus, he says he himself is our peace. And he was persecuted for righteousness sake. And he was sustained in that though there was no sin, no deceit in his mouth. He committed no sin. And he was sustained in that sacrifice because There was a joy set before him 
in the redemption of his people and the honoring of his father. And the wonder of the gospel is this, friends, that we celebrate at this table, is that this most blessed of all men was willing to be the make and to make himself the most cursed of all men on the cross, bearing the sins of his people in his body on that tree so that we might receive these blessings of not just the Father, but His Father, whom He makes our Father. Friends, if you're in Christ this morning, this is your destiny. Because it's His image. And I know when we look at it, we say, none of us, none of us can check it off. None of us can stand before it without bowing our heads. But at the same time, those of us who know Christ, and I urge you to close with Christ this morning, don't be a bystander. Let God empty your cup and let him fill your cup with the wine of his grace. But friends, once he does that, you can't look at this list and not say, Lord Jesus, I see your face here. And I want that image burned into my life. I want to be conformed to that image. And I strain forward by the mighty working of your grace in me toward that end. Change me. Make me like you. And the table is one of the ways that he will do that. Let's pray. Lord, this is your portrait now, already, and one day it will be ours. Hasten that day. We pray in your name. Amen.